Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, how's your weekend been? Did you eat too many bread rolls at Joe Scrabble's wedding? Is that what happened to you this weekend? <laughs> yes, I went to Joe Scrabble's wedding and had terrible heartburn and then ate two baps and that pushed me into a very bad place and I've been... I've had like a bread hangover today, but I'm <laughs> feeling okay now. Okay, good. Good to get like a little status update there before I, uh, <laughs> having baffled our guest. I feel terrible about talking about BAPS in front of our amazing guest. <laughs> yeah, an incredible guest. So um, uh, this week's guest is Margaret Robertson, the former editor-in-chief of Edge, who worked on the magazine from 2003 to 2007. Margaret is a long-time game designer and consultant, among many other achievements. Uh, Margaret, thank you for joining us, and how are you doing today? Uh, can I can I tell you a secret? Go go ahead. Uh, I'm eating a bat. <laughs> oh. Right, because it's the morning where you are. Exactly. Right? <laughs> I'm eating a breakfast, sort of a breakfast bat, although it's got chocolate in it because that's how we do things here. But yes. Wow. So uh, I'm working on my bat. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so not to pry into your personal life too much, but you uh, hinted at it there. But you just moved to Japan, right? So how's that going? It's wonderful. Uh, I, I moved here at the beginning of the year, so I'm, I'm kind of six months in and. You're not supposed to say this, but it is sort of everything you ever dreamed of. It's a, a wonderful place to live. It's wildly friendly and funny. It's um, full of interesting corners, lots of interesting games, culture happening here too. And so it's a pretty great place to be. That's cool. Whereabouts are you based? Our office is in Shibuya. That's where I am right now. And uh, I live in uh, Suganomi out to the west, which is kind of... A little bit more residential and chill. All right, that is so much more exciting than Bath. It's just ridiculous. Um, I mean, having lived in bo- lived in both, I guess you can compare, right? Absolutely. But if you showed a Japanese person a picture of Bath, their eyes would fall out of their head. They would think it was paradise. <laughs> Some kind of re- reverse version of Persona, where you're a teenager growing up in Bath. Yeah. I'm sure yeah. it'd be very exciting. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us, Margaret. I'm slightly nervous. I've never spoken to you before. I don't. I don't actually know you, but we're very grateful to have you on. And your career is is really amazing to read about. So, um, thanks for taking the time with the preposterous time difference. I've got a lot I want to ask you about Edge, and then I want to talk to you about um, what you've been doing since then too, because games media was a you know a small but really important part of your career, and you've done loads of amazing stuff since then. So, uh, to kick us off, what are your memories of first discovering games, and what were the earliest games that were significant to you? Oh, I have a lot of answers to this question. The first video game I really remember was at my friend Helen's house, which I think must have been on a C64, but I didn't know what that was then. And I don't really know what the game is. I've never quite, I don't remember it that clearly. And I don't really, I've never really had much luck tracking it down, but it was enough to spark a little something. And then the other thing that is maybe the true answer is that my dad had an Amstrad word processor that came with basic and my big brother, who was about 10 years older than me, would write quizzes for me when I was... I think I must have been very small. I must have been sort of three or four. And three or four girls are relatively easy to predict. And so the quizzes would be funny and would know things about what I was going to say. And they were just... They were full of dad jokes. They would, you know, they would ask me what the capital of France was and I would say Paris and then the computer would say it's not Paris idiot it's F (laughs) and it was electrifying it was just amazing to have this sense of this computer responding to me and and it it felt kind of very personal and intimate and magical and that I think really set the tone of what I thought computers were for and so after I think a number of years of pestering I got an Atari ST 
for one Christmas, which I swore I was going to use for homework. And, and now I'm here. That's a, that's a very, very straight line from that happening yeah. to, to me running a game studio in Tokyo. Right. So that was games like uh, Ranarama, which is still my Twitter handle, uh, which I don't know if you remember, but was a, these days we might call it a roguelike, to be honest. It was a little dungeon game where you played a wizard who'd been turned into a frog and you, you explore, I guess, randomly generated dungeons and fight monsters and collect spells and then you beat bosses by solving an anagram. <laughs> and I don't mean an, I don't mean anagrams, I mean an anagram. So the boss battles were unscrambling the letters in the word Ranarama, which you will right. note is is mostly the letter A. Uh, every single time that was the that was the only mechanic uh, and uh, to my young nerd heart there was maybe nothing cooler in the entire world than a video game with fireballs and anagrams in it um, uh, yeah and then I mean it, honestly I, I would happily talk about nothing but all of the amazing games um, from that era today I think there was a there was a bunch of stuff so games like Dungeon Master and um, Mercenary and Damocles and Midwinter and Captive and all kinds of things that were just unbelievably accomplished and still really interesting from a game design perspective. So I, yeah, I, I feel actually pretty lucky to have emerged into that scene. I think I got a really interesting education. Do you think that growing up in that scene, it sort of predates there being this monocultural element to games where everyone's playing the same sort of console games? I mean, completely. It was still... It still felt relatively underground. The a few, I mean, there were just culturally there were so many magical things about it. The ST Amiga Wars, of which history would say I was on the losing side as a, as a <laughs> ST fanatic, were weirdly culturally useful. So you had an immediate alliance at school with anyone who was kind of effectively on your team. I still remember. Yeah. You know, at school one day when I was, I don't know, I'd be 12 or 13, I was, I was lining up outside a physics classroom ready to go in and uh, one, of, one of the big boys, one of the sixth years, saw me and walked over and it was a kind of a scary moment. It was just not a thing that happened normally. And he narrowed his eyes and looked at me for a second and then dug his hand in his pocket and um, tucked, into my, tucked into my school blazer a little pile of pirated discs. <laughs> for the ST because he knew I was part of the ST crew and so uh, I went home with this kind of exciting treasure and that was also part of it that the, the piracy scene back then and I, you know I am now um, someone who earns my living through game development so I understand the harm that piracy can do but at that time the scene was so different I, I had no money to spend on games so I, I was not a, a consumer that was choosing out of purchasing and the, part, the piracy scene was super interesting. So the way you got pirated games was you, you got them on things called CDs, which were not CDs. Those were, these were cracked discs. These were right. floppies that, that, were, that were known as CDs. And they came from a, a cracking crew, uh, like the Medway Boys or the Pompeii Pirates, you know, who I thought were like the most glamorous, sophisticated heroes but presumably in hindsight were three 19 year olds in in someone's bedroom <laughs> but the the cds that you would get would have a couple games on them that you were really excited to play but they would also have like tech demos and music visualizers and just just art mm. just 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 bitmaps 
and it was all relatively countercultural. So you know, I remember getting anti-Gulf War ones and stuff, and it was just this incredible pipeline of weird digital energy. This, you know, the, the fact that mm. some sixty-year outside of physics class can slip me a, a floppy disk, and then that night I'm looking at weird anti-George Bush propaganda made by a nineteen-year-old. <laughs> In Portsmouth, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it felt very narcotic. It was, it was really, really addictive. So yeah, it was, it was a no idea what your original question was, but that's that's where it took me. Were you very aware of like the developers behind the games? If you have this interest in this kind of like sort of middleman kind of cracking crew, I was reading ST Format at the time when you. You know, when you you have no money to buy games, then then magazine demo discs were incredibly important in terms of having stuff to mm. play. Yeah, you were you know you were seeing um, interviews and making obs in there. I remember you you will understand when I why I remember this so vividly. I remember they one that had a, a, a making of the Prince of Persia, and it had in it stills from the video that Jordan Mechner made of his brother running, his little right. brother running on a treadmill at home, which he used to, like, hand rotoscope. Yeah. The incredible, you know, everybody was losing their minds over how fluid the animation in, in Prince of mm. Persia was. I remember staring at these kind of, like, muddy VHS quality stills of a... You know, of a of a kid in a pair of sweatpants in a in a <laughs> suburban bedroom somewhere across the world, who the the power of computers had transformed into this amazing hero that I'd been playing in this game. So yeah, I think I did I did have that sense very early on of of mm. that kind of human connection of oh no, there's a there's a person at the other end of this experience who's made this amazing treat for me. Yeah, yeah, right. So, as an extension of that, were you you pretty engaged at the time with with games media, uh, Margaret? Is that was that something that was immediately on your radar? Or did you discover that a bit later? I think I, I just gravitated straight to SD format because of the the, the game demos. I, I mean, the truth is that most of the rest of my available pennies were being spent on Kerrang and Metal Hammer. So <laughs> I don't know that I was playing a lot of other games mags. And SD format, I think, was just had just enough serious content in it that I could fob my parents off with this ongoing pretense that I was going to learn how to program or do something useful. <laughs> so yeah, I, I wasn't really I wasn't really that aware. I guess Games Master was on TV still at that point, but I didn't become a, a, a magazine nerd. I was too busy becoming a games nerd. I think. I actually inherited a desk from Metal Hammer when I went to Future <gasps> London, and it was covered in stickers that was so old I just couldn't scrape them off the desk and I am so far from like a metal hammer reader and like sitting there making a fish Nintendo magazine I just remember there was a sticker on like I could always see it in my eye line it just said cancer bats I have no idea what cancer bats are <laughs> but it was just always there and I had Mario like on my screen and cancer bats on my desk and thinking like what is this this is a silly job Oh, I would have taken uh, that desk amazing. off you in a heartbeat. I, I wrote game reviews for Metal Hammer for a while, and it was a great joy to to to, to review Mario for that audience. Oh yeah. <laughs> what was their style guide like? Did you have to uh, apply any particular? <laughs> oh, it's Mario kind of like attitude to it. Or, no, I think no. I think they were, I think they were just they were very sincere 
I think most most metal people are surprisingly sincere. So just terrible stereotyping on my part there, really. Um, I'm curious, though, Margaret, from there, like, what are the mm. games that interest you throughout the '90s? I guess, like, what what sort of leads you towards some kind of career focused around games oh. in terms of what you're actually playing? So it, ne- it nearly all went wrong. I I took it. I've got forgotten this until you asked me. I took a year out after I finished school for going to university, and I lent my entire ST game collection to my best friend Colin to so that he could play my games while I was away because there's no point in them just sitting there. And when I got back a year later, he said I'd never given them to it. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> it kind of kind of ruined our friendship. Oh um, man. Oh gosh. And I, st- I still don't really, I've not got closure on it. We fell out of touch. He was, he was the most wonderful person. If there was the speck of wrongdoing that he did, um, for a start, I don't believe it because he was a very good-hearted person and he wouldn't do anything wrong. And then also he'd done a million unbelievably kind things in our friendship before that. So I, I bear him no ill will now, but at the time it was just this weird thorn that we couldn't really process and so then I just I came I'd been looking forward to playing games when I got home and I got home and I had nothing I gave him every single disc I had so I had nothing to play and that was sort of the end of my games career but then I I went to to college I went to Glasgow University for a year and one day there was an envelope in my mailbox saying that the university had previously had a competitive bursary program where people would apply to win a bursary, but due to cost constraints, they were no longer able to run that prize. So instead, what they did was they just looked at everybody's exam results and they gave the bursaries to whoever got the best exam results. And they looked and I had got really good exam results because nerd. (laughs) And so here's a check. So it was just this completely surreal windfall. And I say with great pride that I took that check and spent it immediately on a PlayStation 1. Oh, amazing. (laughs) That's very wise. Because it felt like the right thing to do. And... Yeah, that that place everyone went with me everywhere. Uh, it turns out you can the, the if you remember the, the the size and shape of a PlayStation One, uh, you mm. can uh, wrap it up perfectly in a pair of pajama trousers. <laughs> and so anytime I went anywhere, I would roll up my PlayStation One in my pajama trousers and take it with me. Um, and yeah, that was. I mean, again, I feel that that timing was incredible. That I mean, I think that the. A lot of people had experience with the, with early PlayStation that it was like, oh, gaming is cool and it's for grown-ups and it's for club kids. I think that wasn't so revelatory for me because having grown up through this kind of ST world, that stuff that I was explaining before about like music visualizers and mm. weird propaganda, games hadn't felt that kiddie. I hadn't grown up through console. I hadn't grown up with Mario and, and Super Nintendo. And so right. it didn't exactly blow me away but it suited me down to the ground it was like oh yeah this is what i love about games this feels right and then also it was a way to have a cd player because you needed a cd player in those days and so that was it was my music player for a long time was was how i listened to music was through my playstation what games did you buy with your playstation oh i had i had very little money i had very little money left once i bought the machine Oh, right, yeah. Um, and so I could, one of the things i came home with was a game called Kalik the blood which you should Google. <laughs> it's one of the worst. I had to play that whole wretched thing so many times because it was one of the only games I had. 
Uh, it's a very, very bad kind of doom up. You could maybe tell how bad it is by the fact that it's called Kalik the Blood. It was not a good video game. But uh, these are not going to be in chronological order, but obviously a huge amount of Wipeout. I love games with all my heart. I'm not very good at them. That My one gaming skill claim to fame is that I used to be able to complete a successful lap of the first track of Wipeout, which I think is Ultima, with the TV turned off. Whoa. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it so well. Uh, I could do what a track. party trick! Right? Um, and listen, I did not get a good time, but I would, I would, I could do a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, a lot of micro machines. Uh, oh, you yeah. could do, hmm. you could do uh, two to a pad, so you could get four player micro machines going. A jumping flash, bit of Rayman, and then, and then still a, a million demo discs. So this would, this would now, now, now we're moving into official PlayStation magazine territory again. You know, full price games were, were were mostly beyond my reach. So those those demo discs were they were you know I was I was sharing a flat with three other game fanatics, and the arrival of that magazine every month was such a big deal because it was your chance to to, to play some new games. Um, and I mm. I kept those. I think I finally jettisoned those discs maybe in in this move to Japan, but I I still had. <laughs> a, a, CD wallet full of. I still remember exactly how they look. The the official PlayStation demo discs were were hugely precious. I looked up a uh, Kalik. It got thirty one out of forty in Famitsu. Maybe I should revisit <laughs> it. I've not been back. Maybe 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 I was the one who was uh, in the wrong there. <laughs> or maybe there so, just weren't there just weren't really any good PlayStation One games yet. I think is some of what yeah. was happening. So. When did you figure out you wanted a career in games? And can I ask, did your brother making you quizzes have anything mm. to do with your desire to eventually make games? I think I never thought I could make games. I'd never kind of got into the the programming or or art creation side of things. It just didn't seem like a real job. I mean, now you can go to college for it. Now everybody kind of understands that this is an industry that you can join. At that point, I, I kind of knew that individuals... I knew that, you know, we talked a little bit about kind of knowing that human beings make games, but they just sort of felt like wizards. It didn't really feel like a job. Uh. I was I was getting more and more and more interested in games themselves. We're, you know, we're now at a kind of at a time where like emulation's becoming much more possible. So I was having a chance to go back and check out all of the machines that I, that I hadn't played. So I was kind of like turning into a, a scholar almost of this stuff. I was like, whoa, there was this, this thing for here about this, this thing called the Neo Geo. And now I can figure out how to um, uh, play some of those titles. So I was getting more, I was spending more and more time learning and playing and thinking and talking, but I didn't really think that I could make them. So I did the the one game job I applied to is I, pl- I applied to be the receptionist at, gosh, were they called Tsunami? Martin Hollis's oh, yeah. studio yeah. after uh, he left. Uh, rare. Yeah, Zunami. Um, yeah, they they were looking for receptionists, so I applied for that job, which was about as much as I could imagine myself being qualified for. I think I maybe never heard back. Right. But by that time, the focus for me had become much more on Edge and on the Edge forums, which is is really where the next chapter started for me. What sort of like um, takes you from being the person playing Killick, um, the Blood, to someone who's thinking? really you know you're calcifying your thoughts about games and 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 kind of leading you to edge because it feels like there's probably a little journey for you to take there you mentioned emulation so when do you decide that 
there's I, I guess like that next level of how you think about these things and how you talk about these things it was just so exciting to get to talk about them I think I, I, I was just kind of like exploding with amazement and curiosity about all these amazing things that I felt like people didn't really know about and I didn't have anyone to talk to about because mm. you know again I think culturally it was such a different time games games were just way less mainstream way less culturally accepted I mean I, I remember when I, I moved to London I would like I remember one time I saw another adult playing I guess probably a GBA on on the underground and I was like should I should I go talk to him because I was just <laughs> so excited to see somebody else playing a video game and so that <laughs> that was the the kind of vibe and so when you found your way to the edge forum and it was just full of other people who were were had exactly that same desperate need to talk to people you it was just delight to to be there to get to to hang out with with people who finally felt like they were your crew they were your your Mm. right people and so i didn't i didn't really have a, a plan i did i did have one thought when i started being more vocal on the forums which was just hey there are people here who one day might hire you so just put the effort in just just be a person who posts good stuff and handles themselves well and and you love this place you want it to be great just put the effort in Mm. i just had an instinct it wasn't it wasn't a plan but it was just an instinct of like it's it, it it's worth taking this a little bit seriously and so very quickly became a, a moderator on that forum, and then that started bringing me into contact with some of the people who ran the magazine. Were they were they on the forum then directly? Yeah, absolutely. They were called they were called under the the underscores because they were C underscore Edge David underscore Edge as their usernames on the forum. Right. Um, <laughs> when I when I got my job, when when I did finally get hired, my very kind boyfriend at the time got a got my favorite comics artist to draw a portrait of me wearing a t-shirt that said underscore on it because now i was finally an, an underscore oh. um who's your favorite comic artist if you don't mind me asking that that uh, that was i mean you shouldn't have to choose but that was um actually james kachalka who does the sketchbook diaries right right um, yeah I know so the name. On, the, on the indie side but yeah the, that i still have somewhere it's still my avatar in some places so yeah, they were around, but I think the, the 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 more influential thing maybe was that was that the forum started having meetups. We were all delighted to have found each other, but we still mostly had no nobody in real life that we were talking to about this stuff. I think there was one small initial meetup that I didn't make it to, and then there was the first big meetup in Bath. I I don't know, like thirty or forty people traveled to it wow i was i was sharing i was sharing a hotel room with a guy i knew only i think as kagamusha <laughs> assumed would be a good dude who was a good dude but yeah it was you know everyone was broke no one it, it was an it was a real ragtag bunch of people from kind of very different yeah. backgrounds and, and very different interests and i think the edge team helped hire out a bar for us uh steve i remember had brought uh, ten player Sam Bomberman. Some I think somebody had an Xbox. I think Xbox had just launched, and so oh, wow. nobody had really seen it yet. Yeah, it was it was just heaven. It was just you know suddenly everybody there was somebody you could talk to about the stuff that that 
you were most fascinated by. I made friends on those meets that have lasted my whole life, and the the network of friendships is, is bigger and stronger than that, that the, the dozens of us whose lives are still interconnected deeply from those first meetings, and, and many, many of those people are, are, are now still uh, in the games industry. I was just, just, I just met up in Kyoto on the weekend with someone I know from that first meet who has a game studio in Kyoto now. So yeah, it was the, wow. those the, the four of those meetups were were crazy, crazy influential. Yeah, life affirming, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, what do you remember about the Edge interview process at the time? And I suppose how did you end up applying for the job from being a member of that community? Gosh, a few things happened. They they had been advertising a role for a staff writer, but they took the advert down, and so I hadn't I hadn't really thought that I could go for it. But I once it. The effort went. I was like, "Oh well, you know that that's that. I missed my chance. That was that was never going to happen." We now arrive at the inaugural mention of Mr. Tony Mott in this podcast. It was only a matter of time. <laughs> um, right. Tony was running Game Central on Teletext. He was just restarting right. Game Central on Teletext, and he was looking for people to write for that. So he asked me on the via the forum. He had I had been right. It had been worth trying to make an effort and write good content on the forum. He got in touch and said, did I want a column? And I obviously said yes. So my first, the first games writing I did was for um, a monthly column on Teletext Game Central. I still feel weird every time I see that name in Metro now, but there we go. (laughs) Right, Um, yeah. (laughs) uh, That that was amazing. That was an incredible... it, 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 It was a huge audience. It was... You know, a million people read that thing, way more than read any magazine I ever wrote for. It was still wow. a huge source of, of, of information for people. But your writing, the discipline required writing for that format is incredible. I mean, you have a, you have a character, every line needs to be 39 characters or something. And so you don't just right. have a word count, you have a per line character count. So it's, they're, they were like writing haikus. Um, <laughs> uh but it was wonderful. And again, I got to know some of my other columnists there. I've become lifelong friends. So that kind of gave me a little bit of confidence. And then I think Steve and David let me know on the forum that they were still looking for someone, even though the job posting had gone. I honestly, honestly thought if I apply and I get an interview, I'll get to see the office. Right. <laughs> and that was my goal. I was like, I'll get to inside the edge office (laughs) I really think I didn't think I would get it I thought they wouldn't harm me because I didn't have a journalism degree I was like oh this is a job for a journalist and a journalist should have journalist training and I don't have that so all of the prep I did for the interview was like trying to learn how a magazine got made and what what journalism is (laughs) (laughs) I went in uh, and I did the interview and I don't think I did great it was I was super nervous. I, I later found out it was deadline day. I don't know what he was doing scheduling interviews on deadline oh. day, but it was deadline day. <laughs> so he was exhausted and distracted. Well, not, he wasn't distracted in the interview. He gave the interview his full focus, but you know he was obviously just in the middle of a very, very demanding day. And I walked out of it thinking, well, there you go. I knew it wasn't really going to work. Uh, at least I gave it a swing. And I went to the pub to drown my sorrows I guess I must have been with somebody. I guess I must have known. I just want to clarify, I don't think I was drinking alone. Uh, 
<laughs> what I what I didn't know is I had accidentally picked one of the future pubs. And so because it was deadline day, when the Edge crew finished the issue, they all showed up for a drink. So suddenly there was uh-huh. Drow. And I was drunk by that stage because see earlier story for details. Um, (laughs) I don't really know what happened, but I do have this kind of like flashback image of me having literally backed him into a corner. And I don't know if I was physically jabbing him in the chest, but I think there was some amount of finger waving because I had just launched into all of my like super passionate feelings about games and about Edge and about the magazine and what I thought it should be like and what was good and what was bad and, and how things would change and what things were precious because I was, it was, you know, it was fine. I knew I hadn't got the job. Um, and I right. was a little bit, um, loosened up, uh, <laughs> to and yeah, I think probably I got the call. James Binns, I think gave me the call two days later and said, yeah, you've got the job. Wow. And he offered me a, he told me how much the salary was and I took a deep breath because I'd read all the books that said that this is what you're supposed to do. And I asked for a slightly higher number and he laughed and said, I don't need to give you that. I know how badly you want this job. And I said, <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> Amazing. Well, um, that's quite a process. Um, I was just going to ask you from there, like how did you find the experience of joining the team at that time? Like what was it, what was it like coming into that as someone who, had seemingly secured their their job in the pub i mean was it was it then intimidating to just like to switch lives to i just work i work on this magazine now then i really wanted it and now i have it i do remember arriving very vividly they were just about to move offices it wasn't super clear they had really remembered that i was starting so i got there and they showed me to my desk and the only thing that was on my desk was a pencil And I sat there for a bit with this pencil, thinking, I don't really know how this is going to work. And uh, the first job they gave me was to review a packet of mental stimulation sweeties. I think they were called X-Styles. Right. uh, That were being marketed at gamers, and they thought that there might be a funny sidebar in it. So could I write something about X-Styles? So there was definitely a kind of there was an initial thing where I was like, oh, I I have no idea what I'm doing, and I don't I don't know how any of this works, and I don't know if this is going to be okay. Wow. But every it was such a nice team, and I knew the magazine so well, and I knew games pretty well that I think it all came together fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. And then I think I, I mean I think also I was just on the road almost immediately. I think. My second issue, I was maybe out at E3. Wow. So it was kind of just real in at the deep end stuff. You were like, I guess I'm supposed to come home with photos, but I don't have a camera. So I guess I need to, how does that work? I bought a little Sony CyberShot, you know, 2.3 megapixel camera or something. And I remember taking, (laughs) taking photos of like the cable cars in San Francisco that are, have plaques commemorating Atari and just be just being I mean I'd never been to America before I guess so it was yeah it was just it was right. eyes, it was eyes on stalks non-stop is that 2003 yes. E3 you would have been at I think so yeah. yeah do you remember much about that experience your first E3 no <laughs> just being just being scared all the time I think that the pressure right. felt intense of like my job is to not miss anything and it's edge right so I really revered the magazine so it was like I can't phone any of this in I've got to come back with like the best access, the best insight. I've got to really do the job. And 
I had no idea how anything I'd never been to. I'd never been to a game show. I'd never been to any kind of show like that. You know, there was some stuff that the magazine had set up. So there were some things where I, you know, I had appointments or I had interviews with people. But I kind of knew that I was supposed to be like hustling and finding cool stuff and getting into good conversations. And I just felt really, really out of my depth. And, you know, you're jet lagged and exhausted and yeah, all of that. So... Yeah, I just, I remember being at the show. I remember some booth that was like two stories high and had stairs in it. And uh, <laughs> it was for a not very good game. And I just, I just, I just remember goggling at it and being like, is this, is this cool? Or is this stupid? Or is this right. important? <laughs> or what should, what, what do I do now? Do I, do I line up for, it was a lot of like, do I line up? to go inside this thing for an hour because I because I'm supposed to take a photograph of the inside or do I try and pull the edge cord and be like hey I'm from edge can I jump the queue right. or is that super rude or is this whole thing a waste of my time because it looks a bit like it might be a waste of my time but it's but it's got stairs it, yeah it was a lot of <laughs> I didn't have very good heuristics for kind of like figuring out what I was supposed to do right right did you play the edge card much not really i also i don't really know i think that's sort of not how the edge card worked i think it wasn't (laughs) so much a thing that you could like use on the door i think what what the edge card did was it was like oh hey it would be really nice to talk to gabe newell at some point and then because you're edge you get to do that Um, right right so it was a it was a it was kind of a slower burn playing the edge card yeah so (laughs) Around the time you joined Edge, the magazine was synonymous with these concept issue covers, most infamously the girl issue, which we talked about in this podcast before, but many others around the mod scene, mainstream games taking over gaming culture or gaming having a midlife crisis. These are all covers they ran. So how did the tone of the magazine at that time fit your sensibilities? Did, was that sort of thing exciting to you coming into it? Yeah, it absolutely was. I think, I mean, the girl issue is, is one of the is one of the issues that I still have that I didn't work on. I've got the original, the the wipeout cover that's like number seventy four or whatever, and I and I do have a copy of the girl issue. Partly just because I thought it was a beautiful cover, uh, and and I love that game. It's a great, it's a surprisingly wonderful game. Yeah, I mean, it, it felt to me like it it really fit with a lot of how I was thinking about games and and what I loved about games that you could. You know, you could kind of like study them as artifacts and take them apart as machines, but they were also culture and it was worth talking about them in those terms too. And so it absolutely felt to me like this is this was Edge's home turf. This is what Edge was for, was to be the place that kind of went beyond a remit that was just about servicing an enthusiast audience who just wanted to know, hey, what's what's out this month? What's good this month? Mm. And started being more critical, uh, started being more big picture thinking, started looking at what happens when you plug gaming into other forms of culture, other societal shifts, other kind of like bigger questions. If that had been all Edge did, I think that wouldn't have been enough for me. But because it was that combined with the kind of scholarship and the awareness of history and the interest in technology and the intense critical uh, interest in the detail of the player experience that together felt to me like exactly the right package for a magazine that was trying to be serious about video games as a cultural and art form. Mm. I mean, I must admit, I've now 
kind of just want to ask you your thoughts on Dead or Alive Extreme Volleyball. Oh. Since you hinted there that like that that game is wonderful. <laughs> Can you talk a bit more about that? I mean, so look, I haven't played it since then, so I don't know. Uh, I don't know how my thinking on it would have evolved. Partly, it was just a game that had women in it. Right. Right. I hadn't had to, hadn't got to play many of those. That was a little intoxicating. And it is a game that did feel a bit like it was a game about friendship. It is obviously, you put quotation marks of various <laughs> heaviness around the friendship, <laughs> depending on how you approach that game. <laughs> but that was a kind of game I'd never played before. So it was probably like the first dating sim, the first time I'd run into that dating sim mechanic. Um, mm. It was it, at a time when games were still mostly kind of brown and grim and violent. It was just this bottle of vitamins just this beach delight of bright colors and mm. foliage and blue skies and um you know people who were pleased because you remembered to buy them a bracelet or pick up a packet of their favorite <laughs> snack or whatever um and so yeah i think yeah. i think a little bit that game how you approach that game d- defines how it reads a lot like if you if you approach it with a joyful pure heart you can have a pretty joyful pure experience in it but i i haven't been back to it so i wonder if now i would find it a slightly tougher thing to enjoy in that way the volleyball gameplay i think was pretty decent i think it was a not bad volleyball game and volleyball is maybe a not bad sport for video games maybe we need more volleyball games um mm. And it was called Dead or Alive Beach Volleyball. That's how, how can you not love a game called Dead or Alive Beach Volleyball? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm so glad I asked about that. Um, because, you know, I th- I, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. I suppose it's it's types of mechanics have only become really more mainstream mm. over time. So it's not how that game is talked about in retrospect, mm. really, the way you just described it. So, you know, it's nice to hear about it for sure. So it, it's been well documented there was an edge exodus of sorts in the first half of the noughties when you were very new to the magazine. Is there anything you can say about that? And what was it like finding yourself as one of the most experienced members of staff in the wake of that? I mean, it, there was a pretty weird feeling. Um, and you're right, it was it, it, it was pretty soon after I joined. So I think it was one of the things that kind of like maybe resonates more when you compress it into a little salacious standing story rather than living through it at the time, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's absolutely right that I did... I think also because Tony was busy elsewhere at the time, so he hadn't been working so actively on the mag. I think I think there was kind of a moment where I, at sort of five or six months in, was the most senior person there because the rest of the... And of course, this is only talking about the, the writing, the editorial staff. The, the rest of the magazine staff were there. Um, so mm-hmm. so uh, Darren Phillips and, and Andrew Hind, you know, were still holding down the, the visual side of the magazine, which is a you know, a huge part of its uh, identity and its continuity. So some of it kind of like predates me joining, so I don't have a first-hand experience of it. I think there were some tensions around kind of exactly what you your previous question was about, that the editorial team at the time was very focused on kind of like asking these harder questions and interrogating games as a cultural form. Future is a company that makes money out of advertisers and so those two things do not necessarily sit super easily together Mm. and i think some of the readership was chafing a little bit about these these questions that kind of i think to some readers felt like the magazine was calling them out rather than calling the games as a cultural form out you know things like the board to death cover and the Mm. mainstream cover were 
for people who wanted to read Edge as an enthusiast magazine of like, hey, what should I be excited about this month? Those are not necessarily the things that you want to be seeing. Right. So there were kind of some tensions around that that I think contributed to the situation. But then I think really what happened is slightly different. And, and you know, now what I'm doing is speaking for other people, which is, is always very, very risky. But my, my perception of it at the time as someone who was just getting to know all of these people is that there was a there was a personal dimension in it for everyone so i think there was a background of tension around editorial direction but there was also just a bunch of individuals who were in the middle of living their lives and they'd uh, i think mostly been on the magazine for quite a while by that stage burnout on any mag but especially on edge was pretty brutal mm. um you're working incredibly hard it's absolutely relentless and then also they were a very tight friendship group and so once one or two of them left i think it just started to feel natural that maybe it was just time for everyone to move on so that right. what didn't happen is there wasn't some big incredible moment where everybody got up in an editorial meeting and threw their badges and guns down and said i'm out of here <laughs> what happened is over uh, a several month period and i think this had all been brewing probably before i even got there uh, just kind of an end of an era emerged when it rains it pours kind of a thing. little i think i think there was some of that so this is this is you know like i'm saying this is me speaking for other people i also don't want to diminish i mean i think everybody probably everyone who's ever written for that magazine does it with their full heart and soul so the the pain mm. when things aren't going right when you feel like you're not being able to do the job that you want to do on it where you are um having to deal with internal politics or uh, square difficult circles between advertiser interests that are, are pulling the magazine in one direction and your editorial instincts which are pulling it in another those are deep and painful mm. experiences so by saying there wasn't kind of a big exodus I don't want to diminish those experiences that people yeah. had that I think were really tough but I, I think it was just all a little bit you know a little bit more personal a little bit more amorphous than it than it necessarily sounds i would like to clarify it wasn't that i had really bad bo right <laughs> do you think a little do you think a little bit when you look back at it historically it was <laughs> like well margaret arrived and then immediately everyone quit um, i'm glad i asked you about this because i i did think in the telling of it in miniature it does make it sound like everyone left and then margaret was still there and like there is missing context there that seems a bit a bit unfair unfair in the sort of abridged version of that story. So you know, it's nice to hear your side of it for mm. sure. So you, your rise to EIC was extremely impressive. On your portfolio page, you mentioned that you were determined to bring more diverse voices to the magazine, extend coverage of games beyond just console titles, and create these more uh, minimalist, collectible covers as a kind of like approach to to the design of the magazine. Does that tell the story of your impact on the magazine or was there more you tried to achieve besides that? Oh, I wonder, I wonder what mood I was in when I wrote that. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, honestly, I feel like I don't know how big an impact I had on the magazine as when you move to America, you have to start calling it editor-in-chief because everybody everybody's an editor in America. So right. in UK parlance, I, I was just editor. You know, I, 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 I still, I think if you look back, probably overall... The biggest ways I had impact on the magazine were just as a writer, I write I wrote a huge amount of copy my whole time there, including when I was editor. I think I had a big influence in terms of who I hired and who I started, who I brought on as freelancers. So I think when I look back now, I feel incredibly lucky that the, the, the people that I was able to bring on, so working with 
Ollie Welsh, now of course uh, Eurogamer, Chris Donlan, I, I gave Chris Donlan his first writing job, M- much to his horror, <laughs> he, sent, he sent into Edge like a fan contribution, he was like, I love the magazine, I love the time extend feature, I wrote a time extend on, I think on PNO3, that weird uh, Capcom, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I read it, and I emailed him back, and I was like, cool, where, where do I, you know, can you send me your payment details so I can pay you, and he was like, no, 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 no. I just, what are you talking about, I just, I've read it because I love time extend, and I love PNO3, and I'm like, yeah, but we're publishing it, so can you... <laughs> Can you tell me your bank, <laughs> your bank details, please? And he was like, well, but is that okay? And I was like, well, it, it, we'd like to. Is it okay with you? And he was like, well, yeah. I mean, the truth is, now that I know Chris Donlan a little bit better, it was maybe also a very uh, neat little Chris Donlan play. Right, um, right. <laughs> he's, a, he's, a, he's, a little, he's a little bit of a trickster. Uh, but that, you know, that was very exciting. We had, I, I hired Ben Schroeder based on, things that I knew of his writing from the Edge Forum. He's now, uh, he was a journalist for many years, but is now a, a, a writer for games rather than about games. He recommended Brandon mm. Boyer to us. And then I think I wasn't, I just, I was an editor for that long. I was, I was very green as an editor. I, I knew a huge amount about the content, making sure the magazine had good content in it, but I didn't really, have much experience of the business side of it, of the strategic side of it, of the, you know, how to, mm. how to plan ahead to get good covers, how to build those relationships, how to do those deals. You know, I never felt like I worked for Future. I worked for Edge. And my whole right. world was, was that room full of people. And I loved those people and I knew a lot about, or I hope I knew a lot about how to help them do good work and, and plan our lives and our content, but I, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't have a ton of experience for the, the bigger scale things. I, I, don't, I don't think you can look back and say, look at how much I was able to improve, say, the diversity of voices writing for the magazine. I think I, 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 I hope to do that. I don't know that I did it. I did push for more original IP on covers, and I did always love a, a, a clean cover and a dramatic cover, and so we... we I think concentrate a lot on using game art. I was always excited uh, if I could run a cover with a female rather than a male character on it because I was just a little bored of the army boys. And so mm. I think I got to do the Heavenly Sword cover and the I think the Mirror's Edge oh, cover. That's a great was, cover. The Mirror's Edge cover was I think my last cover. We're trying to commission more original art, so we did the Lucas Arts cover with all of the. Lucas, I, st- I still don't really know oh, how yeah. we didn't got away with that because it does have like Darth Vader and Hansel yeah. on it. So I did a little bit of that, <laughs> but I don't know that I. I think I mean, and also a little bit. I maybe revered the magazine too much. I was like, what I was trying to do was perfect the thing that I had inherited, rather than um, right. have any big ideas about how to change it. Um, well, I think it was a really strong era of Edge, and if you think about the pressure you're under to continue it with most of the staff leaving like to you know you still got incredible access just because of you know the the outlet you're representing and like i think when you look back at the run of covers it's a very strong and varied lineup there's you know there's some unusual stuff in there there's some you know you you work through some console launches as well right so you know i could i think it it's a short period of your life really but it seems like you achieved quite a lot in that time no that's very kind of you to say just, just my observation from looking into it this past weekend. So, um, what, what was? Have, oh, sorry. go, on, Matthew. Go ahead. I said you, you must have hired 
Rich Stanton, yes. Martin Davies, Alex Wiltshire. Yes, right? yes, yes. Guilt, guilty, guilty as charged. They're all brilliant additions as well. I had to, I had to hire Alex Wiltshire at a higher salary than I was being paid at the time. <laughs> Annoyed me so much. He was so, oh. he was just so good and so credible and such a grown up. We wanted him so badly, and he was like, "Wow, this is." Nobody is getting paid well, right? It's not like, it's not like he was asking yeah, for, no, asking for no. big money. Like, everybody is scraping by. And he was like, look, I'm moving right. from London. I have a family. I'm yeah. taking a big pay cut. This is the number that I need or this doesn't work for me. And yeah. I remember it was it was a thousand a year more than I was getting as editor. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. Well, I guess I have to say yes to this. <laughs> uh, worth 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 every penny i didn't i should have learned from binzi i should have uh i should have played hardball yeah uh, i did, just didn't feel like it was gonna work he just wasn't bluffing he was like i'm not yeah I've, I've done the sums this is this is the number um and yes absolutely worth every penny uh richard i remember him showing up in a blue velvet blazer with a daffodil in the lapel he wore that he still wears that now sure. i think yeah <laughs> But just so so eloquent and 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 characterful and Martin just I mean again Martin is just like a, he's just such an obvious immediate horror. The second you sit down with him, you're like, oh, you could be working for this magazine already right now. Like I I just you already know your stuff. Duncan Harris too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I mean, also I think when you kind of when you look at those when you do look at my run as editor, it wasn't it, that didn't happen like two days after everybody left. That had ha- that happened after mm. I'd had a chance to like build this team of people who I really loved working with and, and, and knew I could kind of rely on. So Ian Evidon, who was mm. our production manager, the art team. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a real, it's a real joy to bring that group together once a month and be like, all right, what are we, what are we going to do this time? I was always very envious of From Afar, because uh, I had a little bit of crossover time there mm. at the start. I remember thinking... Mm. Oh, what a team. Yeah. I loved all of them. I thought that was just amazing. Around the Wii launch era of, of Edge, I just thought it was so good. It was a good time to be Edge in terms of the hardware that yeah. was coming out, in terms of the way that the, the industry was changing. I mean, I think it's it, it's been really influential on my, on my whole career since. But yeah, like being being there for the launch of the DS, for the launch of the Wii, getting to, getting mm. to try that hardware out before anyone else knew what it was kind of capable of. Even the stuff that like didn't necessarily work out, just like everybody was, everybody was trying so many things. Like iToy was happening, and maybe that was going to be important. And then, right, you know, Guitar Hero hit, and these are these are not chronological, but you know, it was a moment. It was it was a kind of a more chaotic and creative moment, I think, in hardware history than maybe the five years preceding and the five years after. And so, I'd, yeah, I think it was. It was it was a fun time to be edge, and I think I had a fun crew of people. Can I just say we, I, everybody, including me, always talks so much about edge covers, but I think the thing I always loved most about edge as a reader, but as a as a maker and looking back at it now, is it's the in covers, not the covers that I care about the most. We poured so much <laughs> energy into those things. So this is the the inside front cover and the inside back cover. Which, which mm. in every other magazine is a, is is very expensive ad space, um, yeah. but Edge always keeps for a little visual joke. And uh, I was also having a little look, prepping for this conversation, and just the amount of personal history and effort. A lot of this, it's not that exactly that it was pre Photoshop because obviously 
there's tons of Photoshop happening, but a lot of it was, a lot of it we didn't do digitally. Uh, and sometimes because you couldn't, and sometimes because we didn't want to. Like, I was amazed at how much of my own handwriting there is in those. Like, you open an in-camera and it's like, oh yeah, I, I physically wrote that, and then we took a photo of it, because that was the that was the joke that month. Oh, right. Or the, the like, there's a there's an in-cover for, just after World of Warcraft launched, where there's a single World of Warcraft character on the front in-cover, and then on the back, there's a huge... It's a weird, it's a slightly eerie photo of a huge group of players on the, it's a, it's taken at night in, the, I think, in the Shining Flats, if you're a WoW player, just laid out, all lying on the ground, but in the shape of the edge E. And that was my, oh, right. that was my, it's, it's kind of weirdly beautiful. And that was, you know, I took that photo. They were team amazing. A lot of edge forum people who who played WoW together, and that was to you know to make that in cover. We gathered forty people for real in Warcraft one night <laughs> wow. and coordinated laying everybody down and found the right angle for the photo. And there's so much of that. If you look at those in covers, pretty much everything. If you're wondering if it's real, it's it's real. And we went and found the thing or sourced the photo or whatever else. So yeah, there's a there's a incredible amount of personal history. Huh. Uh, invested in those uh, pieces of the magazine, so yeah, you should do it. You should do a whole. You, I think you probably could do an amazing special just on the incovers. They deserve uh, reevaluating. Clearly, um, <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, just can't imagine ever having had ha- had the time to do anything <laughs> like that when I was editing magazines. By then, it was already like you know we have like two writers and that's it. But yeah, um, yeah. yeah incredible. So yeah. I, I guess like to cap off our edge chat because I really could hear you talk about it all day um it's it's really riveting and i still just think it's such a crazy small short period of time like it's four years and yeah that's just you know and i just knowing the kind of like i could i could see why you wouldn't stay much longer because that's actually i'm I'm sure that progressing that fast was probably also burning you out slightly as well so i suppose like what is the end of your time on edge like i mean there was definitely some burnout there was i mean you're right that we had that we that we still had slightly bigger teams but the workloads were insane there would definitely be especially you know you're doing you're squeezing in 13 issues a year and those the end of the year when a lot of the games are coming out I, I would routinely around then have kind of situations where it's like, well, maybe I just sleep every other night. And then if I, if I work, if I work through the night, Monday night and Wednesday night, we can get everything done by Thursday. And that's not cool. I remember, I remember when the PSP came out, we had to get all of the games reviewed for the issue that we had the PSP launch in. And I was staying up all night to try and play, <laughs> play these games, uh, to get them reviewed. And, uh, uh, this was at a time in my life when I had pet rats because I desperately wanted a dog and I couldn't have a dog. And I thought, maybe if I have six rats, it'll be a bit like having one dog. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> and, and I had fallen asleep playing one of the games that I was trying to get finished for a review. And one of my rats had chewed through the charging cable of the PSP and there oh, were right. there were no other charging cables because this was like a pre-release like you couldn't this thing wasn't out yet you couldn't run to the store and get one <laughs> and i had to turn up at work the next day and say <laughs> my, my, a i haven't finished the game i promised that i would finish last night to review it and b my rat has destroyed and i think probably probably what happened is i had to official playstation we had to like buddy charge our psps because they <laughs> not had that happen to them 
So, yeah, bur- burnout was pretty real. Honestly, the, the end of my time there is sad and I don't really know how to talk about it. I had, I had some personal circumstances happening that, that meant that I had to leave fairly abruptly. And I, I do wonder a little bit about the other universe where I could have stayed a bit longer and learned more of the strategic side of the business and maybe had a different experience of being editor than the one that I had Mm. and just have more time with that team and and have more time to say thank you and enjoy being with them because as I think I just kind of vanished a bit at the end there and I've always lamented that that it it had to end the way that it did so yeah I think I think I but I I can't I couldn't have got more out of that time I just uh, I'm the, the people I got to meet the places I got to go the games I got to play the conversations I got to have it was an incredible education, an incredible opportunity. I can't overstate, I think, how lucky I was getting to be there at that time. Well, thank you so much for sharing your recollections there, Margaret, on Edge. And uh, was there any, like, I guess, like, funny stories you wanted to throw in there, just so you don't feel like you have to end on the, um, you know... The... I mean, the rat, a rat eating a PSP game was pretty funny. So. <laughs> yeah, it is, actually, yes. I've, sorry, I mean, I, 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 you know, I think we, we got to the somber part after that, and I was like, okay, I did forget that was quite a funny story. Uh, what was the EA trip you were on in 2003? Was it like some Lord of the Rings or James Bond nonsense? Do you remember? I don't remember. Okay. I remember it being a little underwhelming. <laughs> um, I had kind of heard a lot of rumours of, like, trips that were all, like... They'll take you out to a strip club, and it wasn't. Right. It wasn't, or maybe they just never took me out to a strip club. But it wasn't. It wasn't like that. By the time I was there, mm. there was still a lot of drinking, and most of most of my funny trip stories are drunk stories. Right. But they they were weird and incredible. I remember being on a press trip to in Finland, probably Nokia or something, and they took us. They took us on this kind of like theme night. We didn't really know. They were just like, we're going to go on a... We're going to everybody get on the bus. We're going to a restaurant. Fine. But then after we'd been driving for a while, we got, we got stopped by a Russian soldier <laughs> who ordered everyone off the bus. It wasn't exactly that it felt fake, but it was just like, nobody's really freaking out. So this is... Presumably this is kind of a bit. Right. <laughs> and then they marched us through the forest. And then it turned out that there's this like... There's this Russian occupation-themed restaurant <laughs> in Finland, because Finland was under Russian occupation for a long time. Yeah, it's run by a husband and wife. He plays the balalaika. And I seem to remember eating haggis, which sounds unlikely, but I, that is what I remember. I do also remember drinking Kahlua for some weird reason. Um, and then they put everyone back on the bus and had to drive us back into town. Everyone, there was, because they'd been giving us beers on the bus... Everyone was so drunk, and we'd all had this weird, terrible Russian occupation food <laughs> and too much Kahlua. And uh, I remember when I were on a bus, and everybody started throwing up. Um, oh. And they threw up so much that there was, you know, you know, you're on a coach. There's the aisle down the middle of the coach. Yeah. There was like a little <laughs> sea of vomit on the aisle of the coach. Oh. And when the when the bus had to break, it would kind of flow to the front of the bus. <laughs> sitting there drunkenly thinking oh yeah this is this is games journalism uh, this is this is how it, this is this is my life this is what we do i love that it was an edge editor who brought by far the grossest press trip story we've heard on this podcast <laughs> um at tgs one year we were at a microsoft party it was a pretty weird microsoft party 
there were drill instructors for some reason <laughs> it was a pool party but there were drill instructors and uh we had a couple of drinks and then it was kind of a slightly boring party and a few of us because it's, this is also the other thing is that you're on the breast trip all the time with these other journalists who are either from sister magazines from future or from rival magazines but you're you all have a huge amount in common you're probably mates mm. there is this kind of lovely thing where you're sort of you're you're on these kind of like weird excruciating working holidays with your friends all the time everybody's jet lagged mm. and exhausted and filing copy at 3am but also everybody's amazed and delighted to be traveling the world and getting to meet their heroes and, and all the rest of it so they were very yeah. giddy experiences a lot of the time and so we came out of this microsoft party it was in a hotel it was at the pool we came out of the party you're kind of going through hotel corridors to get back to the lobby to leave and we're walking down a corridor that is lined with like dressel tables that have food on them like dessert on them whatever for some event and then we get to the end of the corridor and standing there in business suits are all the senior managers of microsoft japan and then we realize that the trestle tables aren't desserts they're cream pies and that the senior management team are standing in front of this area that's been like cling filmed off (laughs) and We've had a couple of drinks. And it's very, very clear that this is set up so that people can throw cream pies at the Microsoft executive team. <laughs> but it's just us. And so it was really, really clear that the, the only thing to do, the absolutely only thing to do was just to leave, right? Of course. And we didn't. We picked up every single cream pie and we threw them all at the Microsoft executive team. And then we ran away. And I think we did something terrible. I think we shouldn't have, we absolutely shouldn't have done it. Um, I mean, it was definitely, that was that was the plan. It's not that we like assaulted people who weren't expecting to be assaulted, but we were not the people who were supposed to be doing the assaulting and it was not yet assaulting time. This was like, I think this was probably supposed to be a hilarious team building event for their team. Right, for the people who worked right. directly with them to come and have this oh. silly laugh. And instead... <laughs> this bunch of drunk foreign journalists committed this I mean just heinous act it's just it's really terrible we shouldn't have done it but also no one alive could have resisted the temptation you can't do that you can't herd yeah a bunch of drunk game journalists down a corridor lined with cream pies towards the Microsoft Xbox executive team and not have that happen it just wasn't possible so yeah there were definitely some uh, more lighthearted oh, words. Deeply early noughties energy to those yeah, absolutely uh, right press yeah. trips. <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. Well, let's take a quick break then, and uh, we'll talk to you about what you're up to these days, Margaret. Welcome back to the podcast. So, Margaret did loads of amazing things after leaving Edge and, uh, and still is. So, um, to start with, Margaret, what are you up to these days? What brings you to Japan? Uh, so, I have a small game studio here that I run with my co-founder. Uh, we're called Cabbage Systems. Good name. Because we love cabbage and we love systems. Um, 
<laughs> and I think it's, it's a studio that's actually pretty directly kind of informed by some of that experience of working on Edge. So our kind of approach is that we make games for what we call emerging systems, which is just kind of like thinking about trying to make games in new ways in new places. Uh, I'm always really interested to figure out what it looks like to make a game in a new way or in a place where games haven't been before, to find out what kind of game you get when you make a game in those circumstances. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of a lot of what we're dedicated to. The thing that we're working on right now actually is a, is a game that we're making inside Fortnite. Um, so Fortnite, mm-hmm. you may have seen, made their big announcement earlier this year that they, they're extending Unreal Engine to now enable you to create new game experiences directly within Fortnite and changing their business model to support payment to creators for doing that. And for a small studio, that's a really interesting, weird opportunity. So when you're a small studio, often a bunch of games or a bunch of um, genres really are relatively off limits to you. Like maybe you're going to choose not to work in 3D because it's, it's uh, you know, just very, very intensive in terms of production values. Uh, you're probably going to stay away from multiplayer and networked play because it's just a lot of heavy lifting to get that stuff running smoothly. There's some big challenges around porting or getting uh, onto multiple platforms. Suddenly, if you're a small team making game inside Fortnite, all of that goes away. It's like, oh, day one, minute one, you're making games on a platform that gives you access to impeccable multiplayer lobbies, matchmaking, anything like that that you would need. You're on every major platform you have all of your like deployment figured out uh you have an incredible 3d engine you have amazing camera behavior you have awesome player controller programming um a ton of stuff that is is usually a huge amount of effort to get uh, up and running if you're doing your own project and then what you're doing is figuring out how you can reconfigure the building blocks uh of fortnite and the tools that uf uefn give you um, Unreal Edition for Fortnite give you um, to make kind of new experiences so that's been super fun so our, our first game uh, just came out it's, uh, it's, it's it's a restaurant management game two rival teams competing to run the best pizza shop in town uh, except everybody has guns right. that's, the, that's, that's the that's kind of the elevator pitch we kind of designed it to be a, a combat optional but probably inevitable game but the support's kind of more divergent playstyles and, and kind of different approaches than maybe a straight like battle royale experience would have uh it's called fast mm. feud mm. good uh, thank you <laughs> and, um, yeah it's been it's funny it's actually reminded me quite a lot about a, a very different project i did years and years ago uh when i was working at a, a studio called hide and seek we did a we did a project called the board game remix kit which i think the tagline we ended up with for was was new ways to play the games you love i think i wanted the tagline to be new games new ways to play the games you hate right because it was about how to remix things like monopoly and trivial pursuit and cluedo so that they were more fun and so you would just take all the pieces of those games and and figure out if you could uh, play them in new ways so there's like there's an amazing um like a zombie survival mode for cluedo where you're all trapped in the (laughs) cluedo mansion and you're protecting it from uh a horde of uh, encroaching zombies and like all of the weapons that you have in Clue are the only things that you have to fight the zombies off. So you're trying to survive the zombie apocalypse <laughs> with the you know the gun and the rope and the candlestick and whatever. There was a, a an amazing remix of a two player remix of Monopoly called Divorce, 
where you, I think how it works is you start the game with everything. You divide up all of the property cards and everything, including all of the player tokens. And then you play a kind of more conventional turn-taking board game, but where you're having to like relinquish and trade off uh, goods to each other that you're breaking up through this the process. I think, I think the win condition for that game is whoever ends up with the Scotty dog player character <laughs> is classified as having won the divorce which does seem accurate so it was just kind of like really really inventive joyful experience of like what what different games can we make out of this raw material and working in Fortnite very much has that same vibe it's like oh there's all this cool stuff that's already there for us now how can we make it our own how can we how can we build that into a, a new kind of play using the, the kind of tools that we've got. So I'm somebody who, I, I, I love action games, I love shooting games, but I don't really love head-to-head competitive games. And so mm. I sometimes feel a bit left out of, you know, a world right now that's kind of like, there's a there's a big part of the industry that's dedicated to Fortnite and Overwatch and, and a bunch of other experiences that are rightly catering for that audience who adore those experiences. Um, they're, they're great games, but they're not quite my games. And so getting to go into Fortnite and say, hey, what's a game that I would like to play here? What's what's the game that I would design in this space has been super fun. Well, uh, I'll, I'll have to check that out because I have a friend who is um, bullying me into playing Fortnite despite me being an elder millennial who can't really pass it that well. And I keep sending him um, images from a, a Stanley elder abuse um, story as a kind of like joke of what our situation is like because he's about eight years younger than me. Right. So um, I will I will check that out. But um, yes, um, this is this uh, is this is a version awesome. this is version of Fortnite where you can help your team win just by being really diligent at answering the phone and taking orders. <laughs> right. Okay, that is very appealing. Um, so. What games have you been playing lately, Margaret? What's uh, what's been on your list of late? Um, I have been slightly busy with this whole moving to Japan and opening a new game studio business. I can't stop going back to Slay the Spire. It's perfect and frankly seemingly infinite. I'm so many hours in. I don't know if, if you <laughs> folks are Slay the Spire people. Yeah, I'm ter- not very good at it, but right. then I feel like that's just part of the journey of and playing 100%. that game. <laughs> so I am, I, I've clawed my way up to like ascension level 10 how anybody gets to 20 i still have no real idea but i'm still running into combinations and interactions that i haven't seen before and that i you know it it, it, that game just does such an amazing job of surprising you with completely predictable things you know you have that Mm. moment where something extraordinary happens and then you go of course because it's like, oh yeah, I, I get it, absolutely. When, when that happens, then this other thing is going to happen. And that's a thing that you could have, uh, you know, you could have um, figured out yourself from the rules, but you just never thought about it in those terms. And I, and I love that combination mm. of like, games that managed to pull that off, I think is are, are real design masterpieces. Would it have been an Edge 10? I think it's a pretty... Mm, what a, what a dangerous question. Do you still think in those terms? I'm always curious if uh, people are used to review. Uh, yeah, but I never... I was always more interested in, in Edge 7s. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I think... That's I think, not a surprise. Yeah, I think we kind of... I mean, I'm from an era where Edge 10s were 
still exceptionally rare. So you, you kind of don't think about them because you just don't think you're going to run into one. Um, right. I think when I joined the magazine, there's still only been five. So in 10, right, in 10 right. years. So it was just, you know, it, it didn't really seem like a thing. Nines, eights and nines were always fantastically good games, but kind of sometimes just sort of like boringly good games. Sevens right. were often games that were trying to do something new or weird and not quite nailing it. Tens were often games doing something yeah. new and weird and nailing it. But sevens right. were often like the the most interesting experiences. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think certainly in my time in the magazine there was there was kind of a sense of the fact that people thought that when we gave games six or sevens it's because we didn't like them when really those were the ones we loved the most. Usually those were the ones that we would talk right. about the most. But they just had too yeah, many they just yeah. had too many flaws and broken bits to, to get a higher number. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I still sometimes I still look at a thing and think with a with a huge glow of affection. Oh, it's such a that's such a that's such a seven that game. Um, yeah, <laughs> we're big fans of the seven on the pod. Right. It's a massive I love the thing I- for us. <laughs> I love the idea that the, the edge ten is the edge seven that got lucky. <laughs> a little bit. I mean, I think that's slightly selling it short, but yeah, I think. Yeah. Uh, I think. There was definitely sometimes a feeling that the eights or nines could kind of be boring. They would be incredibly yeah. accomplished. Yeah. And there's no way you could give them a lower score because they were just too cohesive, too well executed. But they maybe didn't yeah. um, win your heart in quite the same way. Mm. Interesting. Matthew, does that make you feel any differently about your 10 for Skyward Sword? Oh, no, let's not talk about that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um so, Margaret, after you left Edge, you worked on a massive array of stuff as a consultant. Your your LinkedIn is is rife with uh, amazing things. That includes some um, some new IP evaluation with EA and Sony, which really jumped out to me as quite exciting. Mm. What are the highlights of doing that sort of work? Did Edge open those doors for you? I mean, Edge one hundred percent opened those doors for me through a combination of in sometimes sometimes it just being contacts that I had of people who who had a relationship with me, and then sometimes it just being the the. Uh, you know the, the reputation of the of the the magazine. Sometimes that was that was people looking for very journalistically focused insight. So sometimes I would be doing kind of the teams would bring me in kind of midway through the the development process and have me like write mock reviews of how I could imagine this game being reviewed when it was released that they would kind of use to gauge their progress and think about how they wanted to present their game and, and elements in it. I had a I had a very weird job briefly. I think I'm not gonna name the studio just in case, but at a major studio they they hired me to be a bad cop interviewer. So they were working with their <laughs> teams to get them ready for a big event, to get them ready to send them out to E three or whatever. And they had a. They were working with a. They were working with a guy who was. He was an ex Olympic athlete and rather qualified actor. Somehow, both of those things at once. And so he was <laughs> teaching them a bunch of kind of like positivity and how to like have feel um, comfortable and powerful in how they were moving and sitting and being on stage and how to use their voices and all the rest of it. And then they brought me in to ruin all of that by being an asshole interviewer. So we did we did terrible <laughs> we did terrible things to these poor people. We would like set up the interview room so that they were sitting in like a really uncomfortable, awkward chair. <laughs> and then I would uh, I would be a really hostile interviewer and ask them a bunch of like questions that I knew they weren't allowed to answer or really like aggressive negative stuff. And then afterwards they 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 didn't know. They just they they thought they were coming in for interview practice. 
and then afterwards the broader guy would debrief with them you know how well they handled it and what they could do differently next time um it was kind of the most fun i've ever had um, uh, and then yeah sometimes it was you know coming in early on a project where they have kind of a huge design document for a, for a major new piece of ip that they're trying to release and trying to figure out how much faith to put in it and those were sometimes kind of like really painful processes you know and i i knew a lot about games i knew a lot about the industry i didn't really know so much about the flow of the production process i think i maybe right. handle some of those conversations differently now but yeah sometimes you know i would be coming in and writing big reports and saying hey i just think there is a fundamental design flaw at the heart of this project and if I think if you change it to this other thing, then it might work. But I think if you don't, then if you don't want to do that, then you probably shouldn't move forward with it. And in some cases, then those those IPs didn't move forward. I don't think at all it was purely because of my report. I think, honestly, if you're being hired to come in and do that kind of report on a piece of new IP, it's because there are already a lot of serious misgivings around uh, its potential. Mm. And that's never fun like that. Those, those were not the most fun I ever had because they, they were always projects that were full of life and excitement and possibility but sometimes I, it just felt like you know it's hard it's hard to to see how you're going to overcome this central problem mm. and it's better to say that sooner rather than later maybe wow that's super interesting i've never heard anyone talk about that sort of work before mm. the idea of the the you know like mock reviews that's one thing but mm. the idea of this is still in a kind of larval state and <laughs> we're just going to kill it before it moves further. Um, yeah, a wild thing to be involved with. Mm. Um, and probably hard not to get emotionally invested, I imagine, as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I mean, the, the life of a consultant is, is a weird one. You, you come in and out, you don't have to deal with the aftermath. But yeah, I mean, I think I, I do always fall in love a bit with the team that I'm working with. And what I now tend to feel when I'm doing it on these kind of projects is your your value is often in being the bad news bearer. You're the person who can come in and say, hey, look, this bit is a problem. You need, you need to stop. Um, and nobody else can quite say it that boldly because they do have to deal with the aftermath. They do have to stay in these relationships. And so it has maybe got difficult to have the perspective and the, the clarity of communication and so a, a lot you know I'm now a lot more experienced I'm a lot more experienced both hands-on as somebody who's worked in a, in a production environment and made and released a lot of games but but also I'm much more experienced as a consultant now and being the person who comes in and says hey look you've talked to me a lot about what you care about in this project you think this component of it is delivering this thing for you a, it's not going to work and here's why. And B, it isn't the only way you can get to the thing that is really valuable to you. So what you should do is take this bit out of, just, just throw it away. It's going to hurt, but just throw it away and then revisit how you get the thing you really want because this isn't this isn't the way. And so it's a, it's a scary negative piece of feedback, but it's one that has the seeds of something very positive in it. It's like, no, you're still going to get the thing you want but in a way that's going to work rather than in a way that's going to risk sinking the project. Um, and so right, right. if you're good at what you do, then sometimes even the bad news can be good news. That makes sense. So among the other things you did when you you left Edge, you worked with Channel 4 for a while and a number of games aimed at teenagers. I guess these, these would be called educational games, but they were sort of, uh, I feel like there was it was more of a part of a targeted sort of like remit exercise. What was, what was that like? It was incredible. Channel 4 took a decision at that time to say, so Channel 4, publicly funded, has a remit to deliver 
material for the for the good of the nation. They focus on teenagers. Uh, I'm not up to date with their current policies, but this is certainly true of, of how they were operating at the time. They had a focus on teenagers. The way that they had previously been working is to use the airtime that they had available for this kind of content, which tended to be um, weekday mornings, um, to put out TV content or a TV channel. But they were realising more and more that that just didn't make any sense. Teenagers were not watching Channel 4 at 11am on a Tuesday, or kind of they shouldn't be. And so at the time when I was involved, they the, the channel took a huge, brave step to say, no, what these kids are doing is playing games. So that's if, if our remit is to have an impact on their life, that's where we should be. So they took their whole budget and put it into interactive. And then it is an educational remit, but they also tried to be providing something complementary to what the BBC was doing. So the BBC does a, a huge amount of educational output and indeed a huge amount of educational games. And that's very curriculum focused. So they're doing a lot of stuff to like help you learn French verbs and revise your physics homework. So Channel 4's focus was on was much more on life skills. So suddenly you have this remit to make games that are about mental health and sexual health and managing money and uh, all these kind of other like soft skill things, figuring out how to deal effectively with the pressures of social media, how to stay safe online. Um, these kind of like vital skills that kids need to be taught, but that aren't covered by the curriculum. And so we got to do an amazing project as well as some more uh, historically based games. So yeah, those these are things that you you now can't play. They kind of they they thrive for a moment and then go. But yeah, we did we did an incredible project called um, Super Me that was about building mental health resilience and using these kind of incredible puzzle games and action games to kind of like that were based in fairly heavyweight psychology research about the kind of mental patterns of reflection and kind of mental balance that kind of breed good brain hygiene and could we build games that would right. encourage right. Um, those kind of mental habits to, to grow in teenagers yeah it was it was a really incredible time and working with super cool game designers we we really we really did make a game that really did get released on the Xbox that really was set inside a diseased vagina oh <laughs> it's still a point of great pride that a huge amount of uh, sex education doesn't get conveyed uh, so worked on an amazing game called Private that was about it was a little squad action game about STDs <laughs> that had so much educational content in it and was so unashamed of being like hey bodies exist and there are words that you can use that describe those bodies and sometimes people experience illnesses and we can talk about all of that without anybody's head exploding and uh, yeah it was a wonderful project classic seven territory <laughs> right yeah i remember that getting a bit of buzz at the time actually that did um there was quite a, quite a few articles around about it um obviously it hasn't been made you know uh, it's a shame it's no longer available but yeah like you say a, a very cool thing to have worked on so you were also, president of game design studio Hide and Seek, you mentioned mentioned that earlier. In that time, you worked on Sherlock Holmes and Sesame Street games, among others. Uh, was it maybe even a Skyfall game you worked yeah. on as well? Is that right, Margaret? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's pretty awesome to read about. And you moved to New York to set up their, their office there. So what was that whole period of your career like? I'm super fascinating. Um, so that was very, very much about being a studio that was designing non-traditional video games. So we, we, did, we did do some kind of like traditional 
mobile games. Um, but a lot of what we did was uh, kind of games that crossed between platforms or crossed over into the real world. You know, so one of our biggest projects there was we ran a, a, a city-wide street game across the whole of Edinburgh for one of their New Year's Eve, New Year's Day celebrations. You know, we had kind of, it was a, it was a 12,000 player game. I ran a, I ran a 5,000 person game of basketball in the grass market, if anybody knows wow. uh, Edinburgh. And nobody ended up in hospital, so that was cool. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we did a lot of like physical based stuff, a lot of board game, uh, tabletop based stuff. And then our, our digital work nearly always like kind of like crossed over between elements. So that that Sherlock Holmes game was a it was a really early Facebook game that was a it was a prequel to the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes movie. So the the last five minutes of the game were the first five minutes of the film. The film opens with Sherlock Holmes triumphantly solving a case. It, when you're watching the movie, you think that's just a snappy introduction to kind of like set up the the characters. Uh, what the game did was explain all the detail about how that case got solved. I strongly suggest you never make one of these. It was a real-time, eight-week, <laughs> collaborative, two-player detective game. So you joined the game, you did a personality assessment that assigned you to be either Holmes or Watson. Then you had to pick from your Facebook friends your, the friend that you thought would make the best partner. So if you're Holmes, which of your friends would be the best, best Watson? If you're Watson, which of your friends is the best Holmes? And then over eight weeks, a case unfolded in real time that you were exploring in a whole bunch of ways we had. This was a long time ago and we had AI chatbot interrogations. So when you were, if you were Holmes and you were interviewing suspects, you could just talk to them direct in a chat interface and get natural language responses back uh, and try and get them to spill their secrets. We had a bunch of like action mini games because if you remember the Robert Downey Jr. This was the... the um, Guy Ritchie. These were the Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes films. So there was a lot of punching and shouting. Uh, or a lot more a lot more <laughs> punching and shouting than you would associate with Sherlock Holmes. Uh, and then we, we also we were collaborating with the film. So we were like filled a bunch of stuff on the, uh, on the sets and with the actors from the film. Not, not with the leads, but with... Other actors. Uh, it was an incredible project, but yeah, a collaborative detective. So you, Holmes and Watson would see different evidence each week, and then at the end of each week, you had to agree on a deduction, uh, and you would stake your reputation. You earned reputation points throughout the game for all the things you did, and you would wager your reputation on the deduction, um, and then see how you did, and then that would change how the events unfolded in the following week. So yeah, we did one of those. For that we did the. Uh, a, a very different project for for Skyfall. We we designed a an MI6 entrance test uh, that would patch you in if you wanted to apply to MI6. It would patch you in directly to uh, an agent in the field who needed help. Uh, and again, we're using a, a bunch of AI chat related technology for that. And you would talk them through missions, and they would send you like photos of like, hey, I'm peering out of an air vent, and this is what I can see. What should I do next? And you would help them figure out. That's so cool. Yeah, we made some very, very cool stuff and a very great team. So yeah, I, I Alex Fleetwood founded that company. I, I joined him in London soon after he got, got it started in London and then moved over to New York to found the New York office a couple of years later. Um, and then it was from New York that we that we ran things like the, um, yeah, the, the, the Sesame Street project grew out of a, a project that we did for street-based games um, where we would, we would just, 
paste huge, with permission, we would paste huge stickers in specific locations around London, suggesting games that you could play in that specific environment. Hey, somebody stand on that thing over there and then you can see this thing and then do that. And we'd invent all these rule sets that would turn, that kind of make the city playable. And then we started realizing that we could do that anywhere. So we had a project called Tiny Games where it was a mobile app where you could say, hey, there's three of us, we're in a bar uh, and we've got some straws. What's a game that we can play? Oh, there's two of us, we're in a train. What are some games that we can play? And we would be able to generate a game for you in that environment. And the team at Sesame Street loved that idea and they were like, hey, could we do one but for three-year-olds? And and then there started the toughest uh, sequence of playtests I ever had to run in my game design career where you were, you were trying to design these games for three-year-olds and testing them with three-year-olds who are unsparing in their criticism of what you're doing. If it ain't fun, they are going to let you know right away. So, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, learned, I learned a lot from that audience. Incredible uh, array of stuff that you worked on there. I, you then worked for Dots in New York for many years while also working with NYU. It's pretty amazing as a post-games media career goes. And now I guess I just picture you carrying your PS1 demo disc with you across to, <laughs> you know, to New York with you. Um, but what, what was that period of your career like um, following Hide and Seek? I mean, I was so excited to be in New York. The, the game scene, the game's culture scene in New York is incredible. And, and NYU has definitely been a, a huge part of that. So the Game Center department there was one of the first uh, kind of really heavyweight uh, academic games centers. And so I worked for them as a long time as their industry liaison, so kind of trying to connect the, the larger games industry with the academic side of things. Uh, and I helped run the, the NYU Game Incubator program for, for 10 years, which has um, been kind of enormously successful in, in championing, helping to, to fund, you know, kind of very early projects and take them from student or hobbyist uh, contexts uh, into something uh, releasable. Uh, so that was very cool. And then, yeah, Dots was, I mean, Dots was, was super, super lucky. I, I arrived just after their, so the, Two Dots might be a game that you know, very, very uh, aesthetically beautiful puzzle game. I arrived just after they'd released Two Dots itself um, and then was there for five or six years. Uh, I was their first senior game design hire, so I kind of built the department there and ran their new product pipeline for uh, most of my time there. So just iterating, eternally chasing the perfect puzzle game. Puzzle games are, they're so easy to dismiss, um, particularly from kind of like a serious game design perspective, but they are so demanding uh, and so interesting and so deep. I've worked for years and years and years on really nothing but games that, were about manipulating and matching abstract shapes on a mobile phone screen and you'd think that it would get boring and it just absolutely didn't. There's just there's so much depth. I'm still fascinated by them. My co-founder at Cabbage, a, a lot of what brought us together initially was a, was a puzzle game, was, was Drop 7, speaking of Edge 10s, although it was a, it was a retroactive Edge 10. Uh, I don't know if you remember that. It was a, a, a super abstract puzzle game. Uh, very, yeah. very kind of restrained but very very just just basically perfect just a, a thing that is a, is a basically perfect puzzle game um and so he'd worked on that and i'd uh been amazed at just kind of the the clarity and the purity and the the insight that that 
puzzle game had and I still I still love working on them I still love thinking about them so Dots was just years and years of getting to do that with a, a super talented team amazing artists uh, a really really kind of like lively prototyping environment I'm, I'm you know this, this is the the excitement and the heartache of of game development life is I worked on I think probably hundreds of prototypes there and certainly many 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 dozens that don't see the light of date that don't don't make the cut um and Mm. they're wonderful but only you know about them and gradually over the years you lose the ability to play them servers get shut down and you know you you leave things behind when you move on and so you Mm. just have to you you kind of have to live in the moment as much as possible and just enjoy getting to do you know getting getting to be that inventive on a, on a daily basis i'm sure you learned an absolute ton from all of those prototypes so uh yeah definitely definitely not wasted did i'm, I'm assuming that those some finished products came out of that process yeah i did uh i did a game called uh, dots and co which was kind of like a side sequel uh and there's a rather lovely uh apple arcade title called uh i think it ended up called garden tales we changed the name at the end i need to get it right i think some puzzle games can be a little bit kind of um abrasive and high energy and the you know the, the kind of i play a lot of candy crush but the candy crush approach is, is is to kind of like assault you with sparkling saccharin every millisecond and it's not necessarily mm-hmm. very tranquil so so garden tales was deliberately a game designed to be about kind of beauty and spaciousness and nature and pleasure uh, and it's very very lovely i uh, it released actually after i left uh, dots so I, I don't get credit for the final uh, quality of the products the all credit to the team who led it after i left but that was one that they kicked off and has a special place in my heart so yeah if you've got an apple device garden tales is worth a look oh that's awesome yeah that's uh that's uh what an amazing uh amazing thing to have worked on for sure um yeah so uh, well thank you so much margaret for talking about your your career like there's uh, there's so much more i'd love to ask you if our time zones were more compatible um <laughs> but um yeah thank you so much for coming on the podcast really appreciate it where can um, people find you on various uh, channels oh, and where good... can people um play fast feud that's a good point so if they followed cabbage systems is probably the simplest thing to do uh on twitter or uh i think on threads um uh that's a good place to find us uh, and then i am still uh, sort of ranorama on Twitter, although I think I got in a little bit of a scramble with my Twitter accounts. Uh, I think someone pointed out to me my name, just for the for the record, is Mar- is Margaret Robertson. Uh, I know that's a thing we all know, but I'm just saying it. Someone just pointed out to me a little while ago that if you write down Margaret Robertson as all one word, I have the word retro right there in the middle of my name, Margaret <laughs> Robertson, retro. Oh. And I thought that was very cool. So I think my Twitter handle is currently... Marga underscore retro, which I thought was going to be super cool, and now turns out to be incredibly clumsy and hard to communicate out loud. So, <laughs> apologies. Uh, cabbage systems easier well, easier to find and type. I felt very like a very cursed individual reaching out to you on LinkedIn. That felt very wrong to me to ask someone to come on a podcast via LinkedIn. I thought that I feel like I'm putting the wrong <laughs> foot forward here by messaging you on that platform. So I will go and seek you out on there other platforms. Go. That's um, yeah, sounds good. Oh, thank you so much, Margaret. And Matthew, where can people find you on social media? Mr. Basil underscore pesto. I'm Samuel W. Roberts, and the podcast can be followed at Backpage Pod. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Bye.